So it's Upositta day. Come together to practice, chant, listen to the Patimokha. The hot season, weather is dry, so it's uh, convenient for practice at this time of year. It's easy to spend time walking meditation. There's no rain. The nights are not too cold. It's a good time to put forth effort into your meditation practice. We're always developing the two aspects of meditation, calm and insight, samatha, vipassana. As we know, our minds are always tending towards restlessness and distraction, fueled by cravings and attachment. So we need to both calm it down, apply mindfulness and sustain mindfulness through our day and through our meditation. and keep contemplating the Dhamma. Going back to the source of all that restlessness and agitation, distraction. Our old habit that we tend to send our minds outwards all the time to experience the world through our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, through touch. Even when we shut all the senses off, say when you sit meditation with your eyes closed, then all the memories and perceptions fuel more imagination, proliferation. So that's our habit. We tend to be always going out to the world, looking for things, wanting things. When we come to practice in the monastery, we're turning that habit around to go back to look more at the mind itself, to use the mind, to know the mind both to calm it down and then to develop some clarity, some vision through contemplation. You can't help but notice even if you're not particularly peaceful in your meditation, you can't help notice the endlessness of craving and desire now when the mind is going out to the world, 
looking for things and experiences in the world. It's endless. Always wanting something new to latch onto, to think about, to experience. The mind is never very peaceful, it's always restless, looking for the, the next thing. That's probably the, the biggest obstacle in the be beginning of meditation, is just turning, turning that around and be willing to go against the flow of craving and to sit or to walk using the simplicity of our lifestyle rather than to follow craving but just to establish mindfulness allow craving to arise and pass away, fade out but not by following it but actually resisting it and putting mindfulness on an object even if we're not peaceful we can see the Almost the futility of craving is not leading us to any ultimate or permanent happiness or satisfaction. By its nature it agitates the mind, whatever the object of the craving, the form of the craving, agitates the mind creates discontent, dissatisfaction. There's always a sort of a hunger or a lacking. So you'll see that in the monastery, always looking for something to do, something to read, someone to speak to. You're noticing these habits of mind which perhaps in the lay life are more difficult to see because everything is so rushed, we're so busy, active. In the monastery we got much more opportunity to observe our own minds and we become maybe tired of all the craving because we can see it's not bringing ultimate satisfaction as we keep contemplating it then the wisdom that arises it leads to actually becoming weary tired of craving and its effect on the mind. The mind actually inclines more to give it up, separate from craving, just let it go rather than holding on to it, letting it fuel more seeking and searching in the sort of restlessness of the mind. But we have to make that effort in the beginning to actually bring the mind to practice mindfulness, go against the stream of the world. So partly that's through effort to establish mindfulness. Partly it's through contemplating, becoming familiar with the drawbacks of craving, the disadvantages, the suffering that craving brings. We contemplate, become familiar with that so we know its limitations. So then we're more willing to go against craving in our meditation.
is because we're constantly noticing the impermanence of the world, the material world, even the world of moods and thoughts and feelings. How things fluctuate, arise, pass away. Nothing is very steady, nothing is very certain. You can't help but become more familiar with that, so then your mind is less, putting less value on that which is uncertain. We see all the normal worldly kind of happiness that human beings search for, very uncertain. Wealth, fame and fortune, different kinds of pleasant experiences. One can't sustain all of that. Our bodies can't sustain endless pleasure because they're subject to old age, sickness and death, accident, injury, aches and pains and so on. And the mind can't sustain it. We can't just tell the mind to have pleasant feeling, pleasant experience all day long. It won't do it. So by establishing mindfulness, contemplating, we're recognizing that fact. So the mind starts to tire of looking and seeking for something which it realizes it can't find anyway. That's when the mind is perhaps more content to stay with the breath of Bhutto and the mindfulness of samadhi when it starts to feel content with a simple meditation object. And you notice when that, that feeling of contentment arises in the mind, it's not seeking very much outside of itself. Even though we still have attachments on a deeper level, there's that sense of inner contentment comes up more clearly. So the mind is willing to drop the seeking and the searching for other things and to turn inwards and stay inwards with itself using the meditation object as a foundation for that. It's brighter too, so the old habit of becoming stimulated and then running out of energy and then becoming dull, bored or sleepy. You're rising above that, transcending that through establishing mindfulness as you meditate. So even dullness, sleepiness is less of an issue when you meditate other than just the need of the body and when, it, when the time comes it needs its rest. But those dull states based through, based on just lack of stimulation, less, lack of interesting, exciting things to stimulate the mind and the desire based on that. That's, that kind of dullness starts to fade as you're giving the mind an object that it's becoming more and more content with. Obviously to practice this lifestyle we do need to have some motivation. So we also have to keep reminding ourselves of Dhamma. 
listening to Dhamma, reflecting on it. Why do we practice? What are the drawbacks of this world? Worldly happiness, material happiness. It's only just that much. It can't provide us with lasting peace of mind. So we keep reflecting on that. That helps to motivate to keep practicing, keeping the vinaya, keeping meditating. This is how faith arises. When you see the nature of suffering, you see how our craving is a cause for suffering to arise, then the mind looks for what, what can cure that. Where can we find something that is not suffering, not stressful, not not an unpleasant experience that leads on to wanting to hear the Dhamma and practice the Dhamma. That desire for something more lasting, more satisfying. <clears throat> You can see anybody with some faith in the path of practice, in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, they can get results from the practice. It's not that one has to be perfect in any way. One doesn't have to have perfect health or perfect intelligence or have perfect knowledge of the world or of the Dhamma. It's also just that intuitive insight, seeing them, this is, there is a way out of suffering. Maybe having heard some Dhamma, it sparked some understanding in the mind that there is a way out. And it's about applying ourselves to the way, to the way of practice. Not trying to create the perfect conditions externally, the perfect monastery, the perfect place nor trying to make ourselves perfect. We have to accept the way we are, but then use the motivating force, the energy of faith, sata, and apply it to bring up energy and then put forth effort in the practice. I always remember Ajahn Chah's comment when he was on Tudong, when he was a young monk. He had a couple of monks walking with him in northeast Thailand and at one point in their group they had a couple of boys who joined them from one village where they'd been staying in a monastery and then they were moving on and these boys joined them but these boys were not fully healthy young men they had disabilities one was deaf and dumb could see but he couldn't hear, couldn't speak. And the other had a problem with his leg, disabled in one leg, so he limped and he had very little control of the, the leg that was limping. But they had faith that this was these Tudong monks were wise, they'd already coming in contact with Ajahn Chah they could see he was a wise a good person and they had faith they wanted to train themselves maybe they 
the limitations of their disabilities, they realized they had, didn't have a great future in their village, very little education in those days. Most young boys would be going into the fields to help their parents grow rice and other things, other crops. These two had very little opportunity, so this was one opportunity they could actually learn something and maybe improve themselves. So they were willing to follow Ajahn Chah and the monks on Tudong. It was very difficult for them. The one with the bad leg would walk, and they said sometimes his bad leg would wrap around the good leg and he'd actually trip over, trip himself up, fall over. And just have to pick himself up and carry on walking. And some days they're walking 15, 20 kilometers. The other one's deaf and dumb. So unless you stood in front of him using sign language, lip reading, there's no way he could hear anything people said to him. If you weren't in front of him, you wouldn't know you were calling him. So limited communication. But they volunteered, nobody forced them to go on this Tudong, they volunteered, they wanted to practice, they wanted to learn the Vinaya, serve the monks, learn how to meditate. And they knew this is something that was good. It's just an intuitive thing in their heart. They knew this is something that can make them some good karma, bring them some happiness. So they followed along for a long time. I believe, many months. And Ajahn Chah said, this, in the end it's about your mind, your state of mind when you practice, how much energy arises, how much faith you have. Even with those disabilities, they were willing to put up with the hardships and they're willing to practice. And he said they did very well. They were very diligent in all their duties. They learnt the basic core what, how to attend to the monks, support them in their vinaya. They could guppy for the monks. They could carry things, could help offer food or medicines. And they also learnt to meditate. Imagine the one who could speak learnt to chant as well. Ajahn Chah said, in the end it's where your mind is at, whether you bring up faith and you establish faith, and that will motivate you to go through obstacles to find the resourcefulness and the resilience to go through the obstacles that you might find in your practice. Whether it's just physical problems like illness or heat and cold, the simplicity of the lifestyle, or more likely just the mental obstacles, our own moods, our own views and opinions, our conceit and so on, which tends to trip us up mentally. We know I have different reactions day by day to our life as monks. Sometimes we like it, sometimes we don't like it. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's difficult. But if you learn how to motivate yourself and contemplate on the Dhamma, this is bringing your mind to establish mindfulness so that you can 
separate between the mind and its moods and its views and its thoughts. You're learning to know the mind with the mind itself. You know, the mind knows itself. It's witness to itself. This is where we start to experience peace. When you establish mindfulness, you know, the calm of samatha is establishing mindfulness and on, on an object, so you're dropping your concerns for other things. And the piece of vipassana is when you can see the impermanence and the lack of self in your own moods and thoughts. The mind knows that, so it drops its attachment, drops its craving, and there's a sense of space. Separation between the knower and the mood and the thought. As we practice and, and put more effort into the practice, then that insight becomes clearer. So you have some kind of inner refuge where you can reflect on your own mental experience wisely without necessarily getting entangled in it, caught up in it. So we have to learn how to apply our minds to the teaching. Listening, reading, listening, and then putting effort into our daily practice, mindfulness as we meditate, sitting, walking, establishing mindfulness of our duties as a bhikkhu, our rules of training, the practices, the routine of the monastery, the chores, the different duties we have use them as a way to develop mindfulness. And then reflecting back on the Dhamma, and seeing the lack of anything substantial in the different moods, cravings that arise in the mind. Sure, you have thoughts arise, you have moods arise. When we say they're not self, it means there's nothing, no lasting essence lasting sense of self in them. They arise, they pass away. They're just conditions of mind. Keep coming back to reflect on that, letting things go. So the mind keeps returning to the peace and quiet of insight. However intense our particular moods are, however much Verbalization is going on in the mind, verbal commentary on our life, on the world, on the ups and downs of life. You keep returning to the insight that this is not me, not my, my not myself. And there's a spaciousness that mindfulness provides. You know, when mindfulness is very weak, there's not much space in the mind, so we can't cope with very much stress. We get caught up, attached to every mood, every thought, every feeling, pleasant, unpleasant. There's not much ability to reflect on it or see it as anything other than this is me, this is me, this is myself. And when we're very stressed and suffering, then that's all you know. But if you keep applying mindfulness, and it goes in the other way, 
the mind starts to be more spacious, more calm. Then you've got a, enough space to allow things to arise, but not grasp at them as self. You can allow them to let them go on their way by themselves. You've got enough space in the mind for other people around you and their behavior, good and bad, the experiences of the world, pleasant, unpleasant, the past, the future, and the one has enough space to allow it all to arise and pass away. Because one has mindfulness and wisdom enough to see these are just objects of mind, but they're not me, myself. I don't have to grasp or cling on to them. It's those moments of insight that help feed the mind, nourish the mind, give a sense of direction and where we're going and give us some real peace inside. We don't have to get caught up in every mental reaction to the things that go on around us. So I'll leave you with these thoughts for your reflection tonight.